Welcome to Prairie Dock On Call, made possible by the generous support of Larson Manufacturing and many other corporations and individuals. Their gifts to the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3, provide 100% of the funding for all Prairie Dock programs. Please follow the Prairie Dock on Facebook and YouTube, and go to prairiedock.org for more information on making a charitable gift. Emergency medical services respond daily to calls for help. EMS performs an essential role in a coordinated system of care. EMS, access and assistance. Tonight on Call with the Prairie Doc. Health information based on science, built on trust. This season, we are, however, continuing to bring our viewers trusted health information from doctors and health professionals within your own communities. Thank you for joining us again. Tonight, we are discussing emergency medical services and our access to these vital, vital components of public, public health, health and medical and assistance. Joining us in the studio in Brookings is Dr. Matt Owens, who lives in Redfield, South Dakota, and practices at Community Memorial Hospital and Redfield Clinic. Welcome, Matt. <laughs> Tell Good us to be about, back. It Good is to be back. great to have you. Tell us a little bit about your background for those of our viewers who don't know you as well as I do. Sure, um, got started in the healthcare world as Army Medic, 81, uh, EMT, uh, went to med school, uh, went through the rural training program. How we know each other and yep. how we both knew Rick. Yep, and been full-time in Redfield since 1999. It's a long time, we're both old. We're ancient. <laughs> yeah, we are. <laughs> Before we start our conversation tonight, we invite you, our audience, to submit your questions about emergency medical services. We look forward to answering your questions. Viewers can contact us three ways. Call 1-888-376-625, send an email to ask, A-S-K, at prairiedoc.org, or ask on our Prairie Doc Facebook page. We will work to answer as many of your questions as possible given the time available. Sometimes we receive more questions than we can cover, and we apologize if we don't get to your question. To encourage you to ask early, all questions asked in the first 20 minutes will be entered into a drawing for one of our Prairie Doc gift items. The winner will be announced at the end of the program. Your question will remain anonymous, but please provide contact information when you submit your questions. Matt, we know that part of your passion in healthcare is rural health. Um, can you tell us why EMS workers are essential to rural communities? Um, basically, the, the current model we have is based on volunteers. And so if you get in a car wreck or you have a heart attack or stroke, something critical, your access to that emergency room is via the EMS. They come and pick you up and, and bring you in. And with the current shortage in EMTs, it's really getting pretty difficult. And it's not just in Spain County, it's statewide. And actually, for rural world of the United States, it's all of the uh, rural uh, states are having significant problems with having enough nurses, EMTs, and EMS in general. Healthcare providers in general. Yeah. You know, 
just even the people that clean the floors and do the laundry and cook the meals. I mean, it is, I recognize that um, there's significant problems with labor shortages across the economy, um, but it's literally life and death yeah. and health care. Yep. So are we seeing enough volunteers in our communities to be able to provide the services that are needed? Um, the volunteer model is more of a 1950s, 60s model. And when you look at the combination of the changing in demographics, when you look at the aging of rural South Dakota, um, we don't have as many people in that age demographic to recruit from. We've got a, a graphic on the screen there talking about the volunteer labor, mm -hmm. how, how are staffed on volunteer labor in um, rural areas. Can you comment on that? Yeah, about 73, a uh, study done by the South Dakota Department of Health, I believe it was 2016 through 2018, uh, about 73% of rural uh, EMS agencies are staffed by volunteers. That's a big percentage. Huge. That's people doing something else, waiting for that call to come in and not getting paid for it. Yep. I mean, I've, we've got EMTs in Redfield that have been on call 300 hours a month. That's, That's not sustainable. No. Why is it important? Why does it matter if we have trained EMS people in our communities? Well, when you get in the car wreck, or I get in the car wreck, I kind of want to have somebody that knows what they're doing, <laughs> right, running the bus. That's why. What's, what's the difference between uh, rural and um, more urban areas in terms of outcomes? Um, probably about 50% higher death rate morbidity, mortality overall, uh, just because of the delay. Like trauma is truly a surgical disease. In a lot of, well I'd say most critical access care hospitals don't have surgeons, so as the most we can do is short that time frame from injury to stabilization to transfer. That's how you improve outcomes. And if it takes an hour to get somebody to them, you've wasted that golden hour. Absolutely. Yeah, or lost that golden hour anyway. How are we doing in terms of recruiting younger people into EMS services? Well, I'm working on a program right now in conjunction with area health education co-ops. There's one in uh, Aberdeen, uh, Yankton area, and out West River. And uh, between a program, and we're going to talk a little bit more about that. We are going to talk a little uh, more about that. It's called dual credit high school students as EMTs. I so was one. Who who are they replacing? How how old are the people that are EMTs right now? Right back to 2016 data. Uh, it looked like to me the majority of them are right about that 50 52 year old uh, area for volunteer EMTs. And an offer to bet is you take that age plus seven equals. I don't think that demographics changed much other yeah. than it aged. And at some point in time, when you're in your 50s, going out on an icy roads and three in the morning to, to try to help out in a car wreck or go pick up somebody that's having a heart attack or a stroke. And sometimes it's quite literally pick them up. Yeah. I mean, it's a very physical job. Absolutely. Um, that they're doing under not ideal conditions. and. Um, you know, it's hard to get grandma off the floor when grandma's wedged in the bathroom with a lift. You don't have a lift and yeah. you don't have the space for that. So when our um, EMS services are understaffed, what happens to those calls? Are calls being missed? 
Yeah, and going back to 2016, there was a data that said up to a third of rural EMS agencies had reported they were not able to respond at all or in a timely fashion to a critical incident. But back to the volunteer EM, EMT model, so the program working with the med school and AHEX and whatnot, um, I think we've, run almost, we've got about 200 more EMTs over the last 12 months. Um, right now I know we have about 80 in the shoot for kind of like the spring semester and then they'll be eligible for taking their license and testing out in June. So we've got some headway. Um, our biggest problem is we don't have enough funding. We need funding. In order to get those people, we need to be able to train them. So, yep. uh, yeah, that's an important program that, that you guys are working on and developing and have developed and are trying to get people through so we can have somebody to respond to these emergencies. <clears throat> so um, what other resources do you have available to help EMS services uh, get through and survive in the rural communities? Well, and this, this is going to be on the screen, too, the Dakota Responder course. Yeah. That's you. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, we just actually, uh, what I'm trying to do is let's look at response at a multi-level. Let's not look at it from a 1970s level, EMT only. So what I've been working on is a program, and I call them initial responders. And I looked at what the leading causes of, of death and, and bad outcomes um, in rural South Dakota that you can train fairly quickly. So like uh, yesterday, I worked with a group of linemen uh, that were at the Joint Utility Training mm -hmm. uh, Program, and we did uh, what we called uh, a program I got established called Dakota Responder. And it's based around stop the bleed, because if you bleed to death on the way to the hospital, you'll yeah, certain, it's you know, all over. Yeah, it's all over. And the second thing is Narcan, because as we're seeing, the uh, number of opioid deaths just continues to go up, 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 up. And Narcan's simple, two squirts. Simple and extremely safe. Yeah, yep. And the third thing is we show them how to use an AED. Automatic and, external defibrillator. Yep, and one of the Which myths, is, I think uh, a lot of people are going to be familiar with that because they used it on the football player mm -hmm. a week ago, was it? Was it just yeah, a week ago a week, that he- 10 days ago, yeah. He, arrested on the field and that um, was probably very much responsible for saving his life. Probably is why he's alive. Probably is why he's alive. So having those available, having people who know how to use them are extremely important. Yeah, the thing about the AED that I've found in, in training, um, well, there's a, a group, a co-op called Agtegra, and uh, they fully bought into this trying to improve uh, the situation in all their areas. They're, they extend from up in North Dakota all the way almost to Nebraska, pretty much all of East River. And we did 130 of their employees. The Agtegra paid for um, their time and their travel. And what I found was pretty interesting. A lot of them had AED training, but they felt they might do something wrong with it. And I said, there's no way. It will not fire unless it needs to fire. So yeah. they are pretty easy to use if yep. you know how to put them on. So that's a very important thing. So what kind of schooling, I mean, what's the range of education that somebody might have to go into emergency response? 
So basically there's uh, an EMR, emergency medical responder, which is similar to an EMT except without all the training on how to transfer somebody. And I think we need to build that into our model too. And then there's the EMT, which between uh, classroom, if you will, and uh, hands-on is about 160 hours. And it, the classes can cost anywhere from 600 to $1,000. And one of the things we've used is, um, in conjunction with, uh, with the med school, was support them as kind of subject matter experts. Um, we've been able to pay for quite a few folks with that Department of Labor grant uh, to get their EMT training. It is really tough to ask somebody to spend 800 bucks out of their pocket so they can volunteer. Yeah. <laughs> it's kind of not the... Yeah. Yeah. There, there's not very many people that are quite that altruistic. <laughs> yeah, you don't need a big list for the sign-up list for that game. No, no, I imagine you don't. <laughs> so, um, What do EMS workers actually do in the field? Well, basically, um, let, let's talk trauma because I think it's easiest for our viewers to understand. It's really easy to conceptualize trauma. So one of the things they do, they arrive on scene, they assess the scene, they make sure it's safe for them, very important, and then they utilize extrication equipment, um, used to be called the jaws of life, a lot of different companies doing it now, and they stabilize the C-spine and sometimes they use a backboard. And They've got to stabilize that C-spine because yep. a neck injury can turn catastrophic if yeah. that neck is allowed to flop around yeah, and hurt absolutely. the spinal cord. So they're trained on how to keep that C-spine stable and then transform onto a, a long board or a short board, board depending on what. And then they uh, basically then transfer that patient to the emergency room. And they can supply things like oxygen. If they have uh, advanced skills, they can do some IV work. They can uh, try to get... It's just starting that pathway of getting that person stabilized. I mean, even people that are having a heart attack, just giving them oxygen improves their outcome. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Yep. And that's another thing that uh, can be done in the field. And mm -hmm. places with more training might be able to help stop the bleeding in a trauma situation, um, might be able to restart that heart in a heart attack situation, mm -hmm. reverse that opioid. So there's a lot of things that need to be happening in the field in order to improve that person's chances. So um, what kind of challenges might an EMT face in the field, or a paramedic, or any kind of an emergency responder? The thing I see in, we've got a great crew in Spink County, but you know it wears on people. You know, back in the day when um, small businesses and small towns we were prideful that they had their employees um, volunteer to be EMTs. Um, they could take off from work, go help out, and come back. Well, those days have kind of changed because there's fewer small town businesses that have those employees. So a lot of the bigger corporations and companies don't really perceive that as part of their... Their mission. Their mission, yeah. yeah. So even just physically getting to the scene, mm -hmm. getting away from what they're doing, it can be difficult and hard for these people. Yeah. And then there's the challenges they face on the scene, which may be unsafe, maybe gasoline spill, maybe mm -hmm. a fire, maybe something like that. Yeah. 
yeah, a lot of challenges that they face. And as our, as our EMT groups age, the uh, uh, big issue too is it's really hard if you're up all night and you're in your 50s and then go to work in the morning. Boy, isn't that the truth, Matt? <laughs> Yeah, I think, that, I think that relates to MDs, too. I don't think we're special. No, we're not special. Yeah. Oh. Um, we, I think we have time for one more question before we go to our first roll-in, which talks a little about some of, your, uh, some of the program you've been talking about. Mm -hmm. What is the difference between a paramedic and an EMT? Is there a difference? Huge. Not good or bad, but just a difference in the amount of training, amount of time, and what they can do. So what they know how to do. What they what know their how to skills do. Are. Yep. So paramedics can intubate. They can uh, give you the drugs to uh, uh, put you under, so you can be intubated. They can give heart drugs. They can do this whole formulary of, of medication interventions in the field, where EMTs not so much. They don't have that same training. Right. They don't have the same educational right. background. Yep. So how, what is the difference in terms of the training? Do you know what the difference in terms of how many hours to be an EMT versus how many hours to be a paramedic? I think EMT is running somewhere around 160, and a uh, number of the paramedics I've worked, because everything is um, in person and online, it's kind of hard for me to say exactly, but it, it's more of like an 18-month process. I mean, it's not it's a much more involved way process. more involved and much more costlier and a lot more money. Yeah, no doubt. And if there's anybody out there that wants to be an EMT or a paramedic, you need to contact uh, Sanford School of EMS. That's who we're working with on this. And we will try to find a way to get you funded. All right. That's a Go great team. message. Go team. Imagine yourself as a farmer high atop your grain bin when you suddenly have a heart attack. The closest fire department is a long way away, and you're a long way up unable to climb down. This is one of the scenarios for which a special rescue team has trained. Prairie Docs Ginger Thompson reports. Agtegra is a farmer-owned grain, agronomy, and energy cooperative with a large presence in South Dakota and Southern North Dakota. Their technical rescue team employs about 30 high-angle technical rescuers to assist in grain bin rescue situations. They have agreements with numerous South Dakota counties to be an additional resource for high-angle rescues. The technical rescue team holds quarterly training drills. Today we're doing a patient packaging on top of the elevator here. The scenario is someone had a heart attack up there. We need a means to get them down on the ground fast, the healthcare, so we're gonna go up there and package them in a backboard and a sked and lower them down with a rescuer. Our other two scenarios are confined space. Um, somebody has climbed on the ladder, fell and broke their leg and they're laying down there and they're 20 feet underground, we need to get them out. So we use high angle rope rescue and rescuers to extract them from the hole. This drill included seven frontier and rural medicine students who observed and participated in the training. I think that this is an aspect of medicine that we don't usually get to see. We're usually on the receiving end in emergency departments and hospitals. Um, so we don't get to see what first responders usually do um, on the scenes. And so I think it's a really good perspective for us to see how they do what they do and also to know what to expect when our patients come in. Fellow medical student Brenda Orozco, who is currently training in Parkston, South Dakota, agrees. 
I thought it was really interesting. I personally did not grow up on a farm, so just being here and seeing what the actual environment is like was really helpful. Um, I am training in a rural town too, so I feel like that's given me a lot of new perspective that I wouldn't have had otherwise in a bigger city like Sioux Falls or Rapid. On this training day, the team also practiced underground pit rescues. The patient is tied to a backboard, then lifted to safety through a pulley system. It's important because there's not anyone else besides Aberdeen City that does this, and Aberdeen City can't respond um, in our area to, to all these calls. So it is a specialized training. We, we take a lot of pride in doing it, and uh, it protects both our customers and ourselves from these events. Because of Agtegra's large footprint in rural eastern South Dakota, Dr. Matt Owens, in collaboration with Redfield Community Memorial Hospital and the USD Sanford School of Medicine, implemented Dakota Responders, another emergency care program. Agtegra pays employees to get trained in three areas of emergency care. Stop the bleed, the use of Narcan for opioid overdose, and the use of automatic external defibrillators, or AEDs. We were able to pre-position a significant amount of what we call ditch kits. It's got stuff to stop the bleed, uh, hopefully prevent you from bleeding to death, uh, because Agtegra has probably 100, 150 vehicles on the road at any given time during their busy season. So the idea is these folks will respond to a car wreck or whatever trauma and provide some life-saving intervention until EMS can arrive. Since the beginning of the year, about 100 employees have become Dakota responders, with some going on to become EMTs. The hope is that they'll ease the rural EMT shortage throughout the state. And our numbers are way beyond, I thought, what we'd ever see as far as EMS, EMT, EMR, and Dakota responder. Quite a, I bet that was quite a day for you, Matt. Yeah, it was fun because when you think about this, uh, the ag sector is, is very, very high tech. Um, they very much support their rural uh, healthcare providers. They've, Agtegra has gone beyond the scope to work with this Dakota responder. So as part of the thing was that, well, if we work with them and help train their employees, um, it's time to train some some student doctors about ag-related things, and they were just super. Watching those medical students come off the top of that green bin, first thing I, th uh, the viewers may not be aware, but those were medical students that were being... Repelled. Yeah, well, <laughs> they weren't thrown off the top of the green bin, but you know, uh, the, uh, and I think they all had really, really a good time with it. And they learned some really valuable skills about what happens before those patients roll into the ER and into the It'll hospital. make a lot more sense why there's that delay. Yes, yep. and what's happening there. So um, some good questions coming in. Thank you, everybody. Keep them coming here. Um, there's a, a caller who's wondering if there's any programs West River that help fund training for people in rural areas uh, similar to what we've been talking about so far. What are you aware of here, Matt? Yeah, the, uh, there's a synchronous and asynchronous, which means you either take your online course 
on your While schedule it's being presented. or or at a different time. And we've we produced a number of uh, EMTs with our previous program as of last year that are West River. So once again, uh, contact the Sanford uh, School of EMS. The other thing is, um, especially those folks who are looking eventually to go into nursing, uh, the West River Area Health Education uh, Co-op out there is really focusing on those those needs. Also, we're working as a group. Uh, there's no turf. We just, we all have one thing in goal. So when you talk about the AHEC, so Northeast AHEC has been uh, providing with the support of the med school and the medical association, online uh, continuing medical education for EMTs now for almost three years. People don't have to drive, they don't have to leave. When you get a shortage of something, you don't want it shipped off to get trained, you want them to be able to get it at home. The Southeast AHEC, and with support from the Department of Health, I think we're close to 6,000 uh, medical students, PTOT, et cetera, that have an intro course in uh, disaster medicine and response. They're all getting Stop the Bleed. They're all that's getting... That's fabulous. Yeah. Yeah, that's fabulous. How about the high schools? Um, that's where the dual credit program comes in. So if you have somebody that's interested in being an EMT in your family or you're somebody watching this show, um, we do have some financial support for those folks that want to take dual credit EMT. And what, what does that, dual credit mean? They get college credit and EMT credit at the same time. So any of the regental schools, USD, SDSU, whatnot, um, they will get three, I think it's three credit hours, and we can help support that depending on where they live, um, some other demographics. And that's been a pretty significant number in that 200, 240 EMTs reproduced. Because remember, we also have a healthcare professional pipeline shortage. Mm -hmm. So if you think about it this way, uh, you have somebody that gets their EMT license in high school. Uh, th that summer they work locally. They come back from college locally. And uh, maybe they go on to be an OT, PT, RN, MD, whatever. Um, it's a lot easier to recruit somebody from the hometown team than to get somebody from a more urban area to move rurally. And are the high schools interested in this? Yeah, um, one of the things that I think uh, is really gonna take off, uh, once again, it's all about funding. Um, call your legislator. That's who's <laughs> got the checkbook. Um, we did a Google poll, and uh, I believe it was 62 out of 90 school districts have requested the Dakota Responder Program in their schools for their teachers and their students. Again, those volunteers, you know, where are we going to get the people to do this? And uh, the schools are invested in their local communities. Absolutely. So um, we have a caller from Rapid who's wondering how are these rural care, these rural EMS services, how are they even getting their equipment uh, if the people staffing it are volunteers? Some of it usually comes from the county. Sometimes you can get some grant money from the Department of Health. Um, there's other ways they have fundraisers. Um, but I'll be blunt here. The day of the cookie sales to support EMS, mm -hmm. uh, it didn't work that way. It did in the 60s and the 70s. When equipment was a lot less exactly. sophisticated, a lot yep. less expensive. Yep. So it's, 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 it's pretty tough, and when you, I don't know what the exact cost was, but we just got a new rig. New uh, ambulance. New ambulance, yeah. Set up. Yeah, yeah. And I don't know what it cost, but I remember they told me and I forgot, and it floored me. Yeah, 
it's extremely expensive. Yeah. Yeah. So. And it doesn't even say Mercedes Benz on the front. You know? No. <laughs> so uh, we have a viewer from Facebook who says that they remember that their mom and dad had a had the vial of life which they kept in the refrigerator so that EMS would know where to look for it, and it had medical information in case of an emergency. Is that still a thing? I have not seen a vial for life in years. <laughs> uh, what I do ask, especially a lot of my, my folks that are retired and they go south, I always tell them to take their last HMP lab, yeah. put it in the glove box, and then they have it available if they get sick. But yeah, the... Um, I haven't seen a vial for a long, for a long time. We do have sometimes, particularly maybe people who are nearing hospice or yeah. on hospice, uh, well, they'll have some information on the refrigerator maybe that has their, you know, their wishes, their end, I, of, life care. end of life care. I do this, don't do that. Um, yeah. So because the paramedics get there unless they have that order, they may have to do something that you don't want them to do. Mm-hmm. Um, we have a caller who's wondering, what does code yellow mean? Well, I think I know what it means. It's probably not ready for prime time <laughs> TV. <laughs> well, you know, that, that may be our, uh, our gallows humor there. Yeah. But, um, I, I think they're probably talking about the code red, code, you know, different... Never, different levels of never heard that term used. I have not heard that, that term respect. either so I assume it probably is something that means maybe an urgent but not emergence yeah. somebody's heart has not stopped so um, what is the age requirement to be an EMT okay so you take the training you can be 17 can't take the test until you're 18 and can you can you go out without the test you can train without the test. So I have to have somebody who's already gone through there mm -hmm. that can be the person actually in charge. Yep. Yeah. And then as soon as you turn 18, you can take the written and the hands-on and ready to go. So you've been talking a little bit about the whole healthcare pipeline, and we both know what a shortage we have in mm -hmm. all healthcare fields. Uh, and we have a little roll-in about one of the programs that's helping, not so much in EMS, but other parts of the pipeline. After nearly three years of the COVID-19 pandemic, the need for healthcare professionals, especially in rural America, has never been higher. That need may be eased somewhat in South Dakota by a new program that will launch soon at South Dakota State University. Breathe South Dakota is a new program that will be starting soon at SDSU after a $1.5 million grant was awarded in August of 2022. Cheryl Pinto, who is the program director, said the program is supported by the Huron Regional Medical Center, Madison Regional Health System, Brookings Health System, and Northern Plains Health Network. We sort of partnered together to write the proposal that um, helped bring in money to expand the workforce and really provide services to patients in our rural communities. Breathe South Dakota stands for bringing resources, education, awareness, training, holistic care, and empowerment to South Dakota. And its goal is to bring respiratory care to rural communities by expanding the respiratory program at SDSU. 
We will be expanding classroom spaces and lab spaces and training at Huron, Brookings, and Madison. And so we do have a, a really great respiratory care curriculum that is now going to be launched in adding to those sites and some of the things that our students are currently doing. We'll have a new group of students doing uh, those at those sites. Lacey Patno, who is the SDSU Respiratory Care Program Director, says potential students who live in rural areas couldn't leave and get training elsewhere like Sioux Falls. So this grant will really open up opportunities to bring the program to them. So then hopefully they'll stay in their communities and work as respiratory therapists because they're seeing vacancies um, in their hospitals. Applications for the program will open in summer of 2023. Scholarship money will also be awarded as well as increasing the number of students in the current respiratory program from 24 to 40. Another thing to mention is Breeze, South Dakota is not just for respiratory care, but public health also. Well, we offer a public health certificate here at SDSU. It's a completely online certificate, and we wrote that into the Breathe SD project as well. So within the education uh, um, piece of that acronym, uh, students that are interested can apply for the public health certificate and again get scholarship money uh, to be able to pick up half their tuition dollars for those. And for Brooke Saito, the network coordinator for Breathe South Dakota, the cross training for public health is a massive win for rural hospitals. Being able to train them in that holistic perspective and, and look at, is there a community health worker that we can train and get the certificate? Is there an LPN that we'll, we can train into RT? Is there a paramedic or someone in ER that we can cross-train as well? So uh, really looking at it that way and being able to incentivize it with those scholarship dollars is, is a big bonus. While education and funding are an important combo, they say empowerment and teaching students what empowerment is in their career will help them. There is a huge need to empower our healthcare workers that continue to feel so drained out by having to do things that they may not have been trained for or just gaining that confidence and assurance that they have a support system, either from the team or the health system. So we're going to remove that financial barrier with some scholarships and incentives there. And we're going to remove the geographical barriers. And then we are also going to empower you to know that, that you can do it right here. You can do it part time. You can do it full time. Um, all hands on deck. You can be a respiratory therapist. This is what a respiratory therapist does. Um, or, you know, there are opportunities to get your public health certificate and enhance your career. Um, so just really bringing that opportunity to them so that they know that this is something that they can do. I think that's a great demonstration of creative problem solving uh, to try to help address our healthcare worker shortage through the whole pipeline. And mm -hmm. um, as you were talking about a little bit earlier, you may start at one level and continue. You may start as a, a EMT or a first responder and go on and get more training, become a respiratory therapist, become a physician, mm -hmm. uh, and we need everybody. Yep. So, we're short all across the board. We're short all across the board, and all of those jobs are really important. So on a related issue, uh, we have a, a caller who said, why is there a lack of health care in rural areas? 
Um, I think once again, that's a really complicated question, and with a lot of different components to a lot answer. of different components to it. And um, one of the things that I think drives it is the um, there's different. I think you have to pay more. You have to offer a better lifestyle. You have to offer uh, then. Because, like, look at the call schedules in small town versus, say, a call schedule. Um, if you're the in three hundred hours of that, your the volunteer EMT yeah. is doing, you know. And you think about on the physician side, um, the current model is you have hospitalists, you have ER docs, you have clinic docs, you have nursing home docs, and they really don't go to all those places. And Where if you get in a small yeah. town, Brookings is priced somewhat still the same too. Um, you're covering the hospital, the ER, the, the nursing home, and the clinic, and, and the, the, this generation of physicians um, are just wickedly smart. I mean, they're just, they can access data so fast, but there's not a lot of, when they look at the call schedule, like when they rotate in Redfield, not, not really gonna be all that interested in that. It's just a different way of looking at the world. On the other hand, there's some data out there that says they'll probably practice a lot longer, a lot more years. Yeah, because they're not going to burn out as yep. as much there. I think our society in general with the pandemic has become more aware of that importance of that work-life mm -hmm. balance and um, working to live, not living to work. Sure. So. Um, we have a, a caller from Rapid City. Uh, boy, Rapid, way to represent Rapid City today. Good job. Um, what do we think, what do the doctors think about a statewide program that could incentivize more people to volunteer in healthcare in rural areas? Would this even be possible? Well, I think if we got sufficient funding, that piece of the initial responder in the EMT, um, if we had sufficient funding, I think we can make that move forward pretty quick. I think Agterra is kind of doing that. Yeah, you know, they're really the kind of in, yeah, yeah. incentivizing and, their In this their rural people. electric co-ops that I worked with yesterday, uh, there's interest across the board. And uh, the rate defining step right now, I mean, like I said, we got 200, 240 new EMTs. Uh, that was a federal SAMHSA grant, the Substance Abuse Mental Health uh, grant that we used on the Narcan piece. And we had a Department of Labor grant for the uh, uh, EMT, uh, paramedic, that sort of program. Um, SAMHSA grant's done. It's over. Uh, Department of Labor grant is going to be done in within about a year and a half. And so, once again, I think it's time for uh, not just rural folks. I mean, it, you may feel in a more urban area that you know you got professional full-time EMTs, but do you go to the lake in the summer? You know, and do you go to Wahi? Do you drive? Through? Do you ever drive to the hills? Well, you're going through medically underserved areas that may have a such a delayed response time that um, having a car wreck may not be a successful. Um, you may, you may not, not survive, survive. Yeah. in a situation where if you were closer to care, it could have been very survivable. That's actually how the ATLS program basically started. Yep. Nebraska. Yeah. Do you know that story? Mm-hmm. Yep. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Yep. The uh, Back to this other thing, though, so... We're not going to tell the ATLS story? 
Well, basically, wasn't it a general surgeon, orthopedic surgeon that I crashed think it was an a orthopedic plane? Surgeon, yeah. yeah, and that was, uh, I believe, South Central Nebraska, and he had to get his family because I think he was a pilot, wasn't he? I can't remember that part of the. But story. anyway, and he figured out that he had more, um, he could do more uh, with his hands and what they had than what was uh, available right at the small hospital, and that's where that was developed from. Yeah. So he recognized that there's this need to teach doctors how to take care of trauma patients more effectively if the surgeon wasn't there. Mm -hmm. So, and ATLS, Advanced Trauma Life Support, is something that medical students take and residents take and help us PAs, learn. PAs, nurse PAs, practitioners, yep. Absolutely. Anybody who might deal with trauma patients uh, it can really improve the survival of our trauma. Yeah, I mean, it's often said, but it's true. Um, trauma is a surgical disease. Are you a surgeon? No, I'm not a surgeon. I'm not a surgeon. I can stabilize, and we got to go to a... we got to get them to a surgeon. Yep. That is important. So back to the other issue. So EMS and, and this whole, I'm focusing on, on EMS and EMTs. If we don't figure out a funding way, we're, we're going to lose what gains we've made. And then yeah. we're going to lose them fast. Yeah. Because here's, here's something I don't know if a lot of people have thought of. So if you're 55 or 60 and you're an EMT and all of a sudden you get some young guns on the rig, mm -hmm. you're retiring. So what will happen is is we'll see an increase in the number of EMTs in rural America and then, or in rural South Dakota. And then we'll see the numbers kind of go down a little bit because I think a lot of these people are just... Hang Down. on because there's... Yeah, yep. they're 60 now they have a bad back, you know, it's not going to happen. So if we don't keep that um, that cycle going, um, I, I see a pretty grim future for trauma and acute uh, In acute medical care. emergencies at all. At all, in and rural in South Dakota. Severe yeah. allergic reactions, choking, heart attacks. Uh, opioid overdose, you know, anything that might need an ambulance or emergency access yep. to care. So um, we had a question also from Rapid City that I don't think either one of us really have a good answer to because I'm not sure we're clear on the meaning of the question. Uh, uh, expanding on the benefits or drawbacks of the certain EMS subscriptions. I wonder if they're talking about, there used to be a thing where people would pay forward to have like helicopter or fixed wing transfers to bigger centers. But I haven't seen anybody signed up for that in 10, 15 years. Yeah, I'm not sure what that is either. I know that um, the larger areas, the, you know, here in Brookings, our ambulance, our EMS service is part of our hospital, so it is uh, actually a city service, and I think it's probably the same way in Redfield. Is that it's the county? It's yeah. the county. Yeah, yeah. it's the, I'm sorry, county service, and I know in some of the larger areas, it's a private service that's mm -hmm. actually contracted. And um, I mean, I and I think there's more than one service in some of the really big areas, but sure. uh, I don't think either one of us are able to comment on the ins and outs or which which way is better. I think the, our big focus is getting the people in the ambulance <laughs> to take care of the people who need the ambulance. So I apologize yeah. Yeah. That, uh, that we're not going to be able to give you a better answer to that one. Um, here we have a question, what's in a ditch kit? 
oh, a ditch kit could be your best friend. <laughs> and what I uh, comprised with uh, a perfect ditch kit would include at least two tourniquets, some stop the bleed equipment. Um, it would have a one-way mask so that you can ventilate somebody and some stuff for just like minor bleeding. The reason why we don't suggest having Nar Narcan, and we don't have Narcan in like these ag rigs, we have them at their centers, because Narcan is not very stable when it comes to temp. 55 to 75, after that, it's no, it's no good. So if I think most people are kind of like myself. If I had Narcan in my ditch kit, it would be really well taken care of for about five days. Um, <laughs> and go in and out every day to the house. And about day six, and it'd be like, no, I don't know if I, it's, and pretty soon, where did it go? No, you yeah. want something that's just in the truck, in your car, that you can do life-saving intervention in the form of stop the bleed, number one, and number two, ventilation. Buys time. Buys time. And I think we have time for one last question, and this is a little bit bigger question. Um, should people living in rural areas always wait for an ambulance to come even if it will take 30 minutes, or should they ever drive to meet an ambulance in an emergency situation if it might be faster? That is one tough question, and it depends. What I would recommend is you call your local, um, usually critical access care hospital, we got X, Y, and Z, should we load and go? And should we meet you? Somewhere. Somewhere in between. Um, some things like spine trauma, a little hesitant to ask that if it's something like uh, chest pain, short of breath. But don't drive yourself. No, you no. Don't drive yourself. <laughs> yeah, we've had that. I know we have. Where <laughs> yeah. uh, can I park my car? Yeah. <laughs> Just stop. <laughs> yeah, if you if you might be having a heart attack, do not get behind that wheel because one of the ways people die in heart attacks is they go into that bad heart rhythm. Yep. Every everybody saw that clip from the football show. Two steps backwards and down he goes. You do not have time to stop that car if your heart stops. Yep. So Maybe we can get the NFL to pay for some of this equipment. You know, that's a great idea. You know anybody in the NFL? I know nobody in the NFL. But, but maybe some of our viewers know somebody in the NFL that might be interested in earning some good PR and helping fund rural EMS or football players, former SDSU players maybe. Former USD USD player. players. We, we, can, we can start a competition to see who can raise more money for helping fund health care in South Dakota and emergency medical services in South Dakota. And I'll say it again to our viewers, you need to contact, your, if, you, if you care about this, if you don't care about this, then that's, that's your option. Um, contact your legislators. We're not talking about a huge amount of money here. Yeah. Tell them we need more people to yep. take care of them and their families and us. Matt, it's been wonderful having you. It's been you. a good time. It's always good to see you. I always appreciate it. You've always got good information about what you're doing to help promote the state of South Dakota health care. Thank you. The winner of our prize tonight is Charlotte from Rapid City. Thank you, Charlotte, for being one of those great Rapid City people and asking a question during the first 20 minutes. A gift will be sent to you, and we'll be back after this.
Listen today to the Prairie Doc Podcast, a weekly show hosted by Laura Ellsworth, as she talks with medical professionals, takes questions, and walks us through important health topics affecting those in our communities. Search for Prairie Doc on SoundCloud, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, and wherever you find your favorite podcast today. When I was a young physician, we talked with almost religious zeal about the golden hour. Back then, we principally focused on the idea that within the first hour after an injury, a patient needed to receive definitive treatment in order to maximize the chances of survival and recovery. We usually interpreted this to mean that the patient needed to be in the hands of the trauma surgeon before this hour was up. We took ATLS classes so we could make sure that the patient in our emergency room got the best treatment we non-surgeons could provide until the surgeon could take over. Of course, in the rural upper Midwest, the nearest surgeon and even the nearest emergency room might be more than an hour away. Fortunately for those of us living in more sparsely populated areas, time to the surgeon isn't the only factor that impacts our chances in an emergency. The care we receive before we get to the hospital matters. In fact, it matters a lot. Gone are the days of scoop and run, when the only goal of the first responders was to get the patient to the hospital as fast as possible. As with so many rules in modern society, a first responder today has a more complicated job. They need the training and flexibility to address what they see when they meet their patient. A person who has overdosed on fentanyl needs naltrexone to reverse the opioid and get them breathing. A person in cardiac arrest needs a shock delivered to restart their heart. A person who has lost a limb in a car accident needs the bleeding stopped. These things need to be done well before the patient could arrive in an emergency room, even if they were delivered there by helicopter. Certainly, some emergencies require care that is still well beyond what could be provided outside of a hospital. If they can receive it in time, approximately 25% of stroke victims could benefit from clot-busting medications. Another 10 to 15% have strokes that are actually caused by bleeding. It's a distinction that can't really be made in an ambulance, and the wrong call could be catastrophic. We all know that the pandemic has radically changed the workforce. Employers around the country are facing a shortage of workers from fast food to finance. Healthcare is no different. This includes ambulance services, where the situation is further complicated by the reality that many rural EMS providers rely on volunteer labor. Those volunteers need to know more than just how to drive the ambulance. They need to know how to provide effective interventions to extend that golden hour. This particular labor shortage has grave consequences. It is quite literally a matter of life and death.
Thank you to our guest, Dr. Owens, for volunteering his time to help us learn more about emergency medical services. So from all of us here at On Call with the Prairie Doc, thank you for joining us for another episode of Health Information based on science and built on trust. Until next time, stay healthy out there, people. Dementia is not a single disease, it's a term that covers a wide range of specific medical conditions. The number of people living with dementia is expected to triple over the next 30 years. Dementia, diagnosis and management, next time on Call with the Prairie Doc. Having access to trusted public health information is essential for thriving communities across South Dakota. As Americans, we all value the ability to make appropriate decisions about our health care. To do so, we need access to quality information from reliable sources. The Prairie Docs and their guests have been providing such information based on science and built on trust for the past 20 seasons. Hello, I'm Stephanie Herseth Sandlin, and I serve on the Volunteer Board of Directors for the Healing Words Foundation, a 501c3 founded by Rick and Joni Holm. As we move into our 21st season of Prairie Doc programming, Board members, doctors, and volunteers continue to follow our mission to enhance health and diminish suffering by communicating useful information based on honest science and provided in a respectful and compassionate manner. Your donation to support Prairie Dog programming makes an extraordinary difference in fulfilling this important mission. Your generosity helps strengthen the Healing Words Foundation and expand the reach of trusted healthcare providers to share important health information that empowers individuals and families to make the decisions that are right for them. Donations from individuals comprise 50% of the funds generated by the Foundation to support Prairie Dog programming, and gifts of any size serve to enhance its impact. Please consider a personal or corporate gift today just go to prairiedoc.org to donate. Should you prefer not to donate online, please reach out to us by email and Foundation staff will follow up with you about a pledge. Many thanks for supporting the mission of the Healing Words Foundation and Prairie Doc Programming in South Dakota and throughout our region. Major funding for On Call with the Prairie Doc has been provided by. At Avera, our nationally recognized health system will be right here with you, with care and coverage. Hello, possibility. Hello, healthy. Larson Manufacturing is proud to support On Call with the Prairie Doc as it continues to open doors for important medical information. And with the ongoing support of these individuals and institutions, Brookings Health System, Ophthalmology Limited, South Dakota Academy of Family Physicians, Avera Heart Hospital, First Bank and Trust, Dakota Allergy and Asthma, Vance Thompson Vision, Monument Health, Black Hills Medical Society, Brookings Madison Flandreau District Medical Society, Peer District Medical Society, Sioux Falls District Medical Society, Yankton District Medical Society, Orthopedic Institute, Lake Ponset Sailing Academy, Aberdeen Asthma and Allergy, Dakota Bank, South Dakota American College of Physicians, and Swiftel Communications.